This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Saturday night at the movies. Who cares what picture you see? All right, so a headline that's definitely grabbing a lot of attention is Amazon potentially getting into the movie business, but not just as a content producer, maybe owning some theaters. And for more on that, we bring in Spencer Soper. He is our technology and e-commerce reporter joining us on the phone from our Seattle Bureau. Hey, Spencer, this is quite a scoop. What's going on? Yeah, uh, so we're hearing that Amazon's a front runner uh, in uh, competition to buy Landmark Theaters, which is owned partially by uh, Mark Cuban. Um, and so he, he announced that he would explore selling uh, uh, Landmark Theaters back in the, in the spring. And uh, it's about 50 theater chain. With so fairly small, but in, in a lot of big markets like New York, L.A., Chicago, um, so it, it, would, it would give Amazon a significant presence to showcase this content in a theater setting that it's been spending so much so much money developing. Yeah, Spencer, you took me right where I wanted to go. Is Netflix always or Amazon, sorry, always has a very clear plan for what they're doing, and I wonder what sort of synergies they see if this is a way for them to tap a new market and or to showcase really their existing products. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, especially when you look at more broadly at their at their brick and mortar expansion. You know, this uh, more than 20 year old uh, company that was founded on, on selling things in, entirely online and plays such a big part of our of our digital lives is now increasingly moving into our physical lives, first with its uh, bookstores that it opened a few years ago, and then uh, with last year's acquisition of, of Whole Foods with its significant grocery store presence now. And now theaters would be an, another piece of that. But again, seeing uh, uh, Amazon looking more aggressively at this combination of digital and, and physical space. Well, and Spencer, we were joking earlier when we were talking with Dave Wilson, our stocks editor, about how Walmart, you know, puts out this tremendous quarter and Walmart obviously is a huge rival to Amazon and Amazon seemingly looks at that and says, all right, well then we'll get into the movie business. Take us, you've gotten into this a little bit, but take us further into the Bezos playbook here. I mean, why, what has he done before uh, that, that might give us a hint as to what the ultimate strategy is here? Well, if you look at at the playbook with with move with uh, books, you know it's a, it's original business. Amazon was very key in disrupting gatekeepers, you know, the book publishers, and this notion that uh, uh, authors would not be able to get an audience unless they first were able to entice book publishers to to publish their work. And Amazon created a much easier, more streamlined way for authors to reach a big a big audience. So you could see something similar. Uh, on, on the movie front, and especially landmark theaters, caters to indie films, that right. sort of thing. So, so you, you know, you could see it as being an outlet. The, the, the big thing, the big theme with Amazon is just choice. They want as, as many choices as possible and don't want a few designated gatekeepers deciding what things people see and they don't. 
So you would, you would, uh, I think the big picture would be that Amazon thinks that there's um, more room for more choices in what people see at, at theaters. Spencer, we sometimes joke here about what we call the Amazon effect, that when they announce they're going into a new industry, every other stock in that company sells off because people generally get nervous about keep competing and going up against Amazon. I know when they were talking about Whole Foods, Kroger and some of the other grocers were selling off. Very interestingly, though, today, you have companies like Cinemark up 1.8%, AMC Theaters, those are still up about 3.8%. Why aren't some of the other movie chains a little bit more nervous today? Well, it is like 50 theaters, right? So it's a pretty small chain. But also, this could potentially be a good thing if, if it gets more people going to movies. I mean, the movie business has been struggling, so it's uh, uh, it, it could be a, a good thing if there's just more interest in people getting out to the, to the theaters. Uh, really good context. Thanks so much. Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Seattle bureau. Taylor, really interesting to see where Amazon takes this. And I like Spencer's point there at the end that Amazon helps drive behavior more than anything. And so if, in fact, they are endorsing this idea of people should go out to movie theaters, people are like, Amazon thinks I should go out to the movies. I should go. And they may not Mm -hmm. just go to Landmark. They may go to AMC or elsewhere. That's a very good point because – Recently, we've seen people maybe slow down in Absolutely. terms of how much they're going to the theaters, in part maybe because it's cost, and then it's easy just to stream it at home. So, yeah, that could be an interesting point. You also have to wonder if maybe people are speculating that if Amazon gets into this business, then maybe Netflix gets into this business <laughs> and they go out uh, and buy someone. It also you know makes me think of uh, the story we covered in uh, Bloomberg Business Week this week around Twitch and how Twitch has ambitions to be the next YouTube. So this is a rivalry rivalry maybe we haven't thought quite as much about, this Amazon, uh, Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, you know, all of these different things. I I love... Well, and it was interesting, too, because they had a note here in the story, U.S. previously barred film studios from getting into the theater industry. Amazon could change that. Absolutely. A lot more to come on that story. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. I love our producer, Paul Brennan, because I get a harebrained idea, and he delivers. Everything is awesome in the world of earnings, Kevin Kelly. No relation. Uh, You are joining (laughs) us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You're, of course, our strategy analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence. 90% of the way through the earnings season, things are looking great. Yeah, I think that intro song said it all. Um, (laughs) Yeah, over 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported so far. I mean, if you take a broad view at this earnings season, I think what it's really done is proven that it's it's no longer just a tech-driven narrative. Um, When you look across the index, it's expected to grow. It's on pace to grow about 26% or grow its earnings 26% year over year. Uh, Tech is having another great quarter, but when you actually strip out some of these FANG names, um, a lot of that growth, that EPS growth, is coming from other places. So when you strip out uh, the big FANG names, you're still growing at about 26% year over year. And that's really being carried by a lot of these um, cyclical names, some of these more commodity-sensitive names, like energy, uh, for example, which is coming off of you know a weak earnings season you know last year, so it's easier comparables based on uh, the recovery in oil prices. Uh, but also materials, industrial, some of these more late-cycle sectors. You had a really cool chart a few weeks ago talking about when we were going through the progress of earnings 
what sectors were doing better. And it was like 100% of companies in the technology sector had started to outperform versus the estimates. Walk us through sort of the highlights there now that we're sort of all the way through where we stand. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, so when you look across the broad index, almost 80% of companies have beaten on the bottom line, um, which is obviously pretty pretty stellar. Uh, when you look at tech, for example, it's one of the two sectors, them and healthcare. Um, over 90% of the companies in those sectors have beaten on the top line. So to your point, not only is expectations pretty lofty coming into this quarter for some of these tech stocks, some of these big high-flying names, but companies are coming out and actually beating those expectations as well. So across the board, um, aside from the energy sector, Pretty much every sector in the S&P 500 is actually coming above expectations overall. All right, Kevin. I got to ask you, what should we be worried about, though? There's got to be something to worry about. It can't last forever. Right. There's always things to worry about. Well, one thing that we're watching for is inflation. We haven't seen that pick up. There's a number of different arguments for why. Um, what we kind of look for and some of the indicators we're watching, obviously, you want to see wage growth, wage pressures. Um, there is some interesting activity happening in, in transport and the actual cost of transporting domestic goods. So inflation is one risk and then margin pressures. So if we see any pressure from commodity prices rising or something like that, um, peak margins is definitely something that we're on, we're on the lookout out for, but so far, so good. Margin pressures are important, but I'm going to ask you a question. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. You talk a lot about earnings per share growth. I tend to look at the top line because it's harder to manipulate, right? The yep. further you go down the income statement, certainly not saying fraud, but financial engineering, we'll call it. Why do you look at earnings instead of revenue? So we look at both. Um, and that's a really good point, a really good question. Um, when we look at earnings, if we come back to revenue growth for this quarter particularly, um, expectations coming in for, for about 85 a little over 8.5% year-over-year growth, that's coming in almost 10% for the overall index. And again, that's no longer just a tech-driven narrative. When you exclude some of these big fang names, it's around 9.7% year-over-year on the top line. So that's actually a key theme for us moving to 2019 as you kind of get into this earnings cliff environment. You need to see revenue growth and revenue expectations from analysts continue to improve. And Kevin, as you listen to CEOs talk on their conference calls and CFOs, for that matter, what was the commentary? What were the commentary themes, I guess? Was there anything that was consistently there? I know they got a lot of questions about trade and tariffs, generally uh, speaking. But it, but if you could if you could distill it down, what was the message? Yeah, so a couple of things we've already hit on. Capital expenditure being a big one. We're seeing an acceleration in that and expectations for that continue to improve. Um, inflationary risk, so, so CEOs coming out and saying that they're seeing some rising pressure, which again put, could put pressure on margins. An interesting kind of takeaway that we saw you know, midway through the season was we didn't see when when really tariff talk was was almost at its peak, you could say, you didn't see as much negative uh, connotation, I guess you could say, with some of the commentary from CEOs as you might expect. So not necessarily a, it's not, certainly a risk and certainly something we're watching for, but hasn't really made its way into the estimates yet. Well, and really interesting, Jason, as we talk a lot, when you heard the commentary on those CEO calls, a lot of it was, we know it's an influx situation and right. we're worried about it, but there was never sort of a concrete we're massively getting hit and we are prepping for it right now. It was sort of a, well, we're, we're watching out for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, it'll be interesting to see as this progresses through the course of the year, maybe more uh, and deeper commentary about that. Kevin Kelly, strategy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City.
There are only so many songs about being private, but private equity is a massive, massive business. As Taylor Riggs, I'm sure, is already tired of hearing me say, private equity is to me what munis are to her. But we get to talk about private equity now. Andres Science, he's managing director and co-head of private equity for EY Parthenon, based in Boston, joining us on the phone from there. So, Andres, nice to be with you. And as you can tell, I get a little enthusiastic about private equity because of its size and scope and its importance in the market, especially, it seems, right now, only getting more important. So what's the one main trend you're seeing that captures the PE market at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, on the one hand, um, you're right. The impact on the economy, the impact on M&A has been very significant. You see that in the growth in the funds and the capital and the number of companies. Uh, returns have differentially been strong historically, and so money continues to flow in, not only to private equity, but all sorts of vehicles, uh, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So that's all the good news. The biggest trend, and to some degree the challenge, is one of supply and demand. With all of the dry powder, with all the money out there, there's high demand for companies to buy. But the supply of companies to buy has not necessarily kept pace. So every deal is very competitive. Um, You have a lot of money chasing those deals. You have to pay up to win. So how do you pay up and still generate superior returns? That's that's the task at hand. That's what our our clients are really facing these days. How do you identify those deals? How do you have an angle? How do you create value? How do you exit well? Or how do you get creative in in any ways, creating new funding platforms, looking for alternative sectors, looking for alternative forms of investment like credit and hedge funds, et cetera? That is the biggest trend that we're seeing today. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that, the the measure of the stress level right now. How much pressure does all of this cash that's coming in put on fund managers to put this cash to work? They're possibly, you know, probably overpaying. How do you say no, right? That's always the hardest thing to do is know when you can't overpay and you have to just say no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we, we see our clients certainly have that pressure, and that's the pressure that's in the marketplace. I think the way that you thread the needle is saying, uh, I need to work that much harder to not only put that money to work, but to generate the returns. And so you have to be much more disciplined in the sourcing of potential deal opportunities. Um, you have to invest in advance. So you can have that angle. So you can say, I can spot an opportunity that if I pay up for, quote unquote, that I'm still going to get the return because I've done my homework, because I know where the sources of value would be. Um, you know, even how they're building out their teams. Uh, right. Traditionally, it was entirely deal teams. Now you have these operating uh, groups within all these firms, whether it be ex-consultants or ex-operators and say, not only are we going to be ready when we buy this company, uh, but we're, we're there going to uh, sort of unleash our playbook, our, operate, our operating capabilities to create that value. And so, Andres, as you go down a level into what sorts of deals are being done in this market, generally speaking, is it a carve-out sort of market? Do you have big corporations who want to unload unloved divisions? Public to private seems tricky given valuations. Are people leaning toward platforms? Like what? What's the most popular? If you, if you can peg that down. Sure, sure. I mean, I, and I'll caveat it by saying 
in this environment, you don't have the luxury of you know picking and choosing one play, right? Uh, and you and you have to be open to different opportunities. I, I will say there's there's probably a couple. Uh, one is um, carve outs, as you mentioned. You know the, the the good if the issue is a lack of supply of companies to buy, it is an interesting environment for divestments within corporates, uh, and that creates carve out opportunities for the private equity firms. Uh, it's a seller's market, so for folks, it's a good time to monetize non core assets. Uh, in good markets, you also companies also have the more degrees of freedom in thinking long-term and saying what should be in our strategy, what shouldn't be in our strategy. Uh, and so you free those companies up, and that's certainly an opportunity for the private equity firms. More broadly, though, I would say, you know, if the traditional uh, idea was to buy a company that, that you can improve on and have it do well, um, the ante has been up. You have to buy and probably transform a lot of the companies that you're now sort of going in on. Um, and what does that mean to transform? It's not just plain vanilla value creation. It's not just fueling the core growth. It's not just taking some cost out. Uh, it really is transforming a platform to get into different adjacencies, different right. regions, going international. You transform it via acquisitions. Uh, and really, a lot of what we're seeing these days is transforming a business from a traditional model mm-hmm. to a more of a new economy model. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's the type of investment theses that we're seeing and that we're helping our clients both validate and execute on. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is how they're building their firms, to be able to transform businesses as they come to market. And what about competition with strategics? Because it seems like the conventional wisdom is that if a sponsor or private equity firm is going up against a strategic buyer, they're almost always going to lose on price because the strategic has some synergies that they can bring to the table. How is that balance playing out in a market like this? Sure. I, I think there's always an argument to be made for, for synergies giving a little bit of an advantage to the strategics. Uh, but by the same token, I think, A, I think there are a lot of these carve-out assets, the non, these non-core assets, may not have a natural home. Yeah, uh, interesting. Such that, a, such that a financial sponsor can actually look at the asset in the most clean way and say, how do you take this specific asset and maximize its full potential? The other thing that I that I think is interesting is private equity firms, as they've specialized in sector, as they've built operating resources, as they've created a number of assets in a space that are related to each other, to some degree can uh, approximate a little bit of what the strategic is bringing to the table. Not necessarily the synergies on the back office, et cetera, but an understanding of a market, an understanding of how to deploy in the channels, an understanding of how to recruit in the space. Right. Uh, these are things that I think are are to some degree, closing the gap. That's great. Well, Andre Sainz, as you can tell, I would talk about this all day, but we're going to have to let you go. You are, of course, Managing Director and Co-Head of Private Equity at EY Parthenon up in Boston, joining us on the phone. And Taylor? I want to have him back because I want to ask where this money is coming from. Sovereign wealth funds, pensions here in the U.S. are getting 3% in long duration fixed income. That's not cutting it. Where is the money coming from? All over the place is a short answer. This is Bloomberg. And we're flying off the wall and things are flying off the shelf at Walmart. 
they came out, of I course, see what you did there. Very good. You. I like it. Came out with some very decent earnings today. And joining us now to talk about Walmart and sort of actually what it means for Amazon is Sarah Halzak. She is our consumer and retail columnist over at Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from our Washington, D.C. bureau. Sarah, loved the title of your story. It's called Walmart Just Put Amazon on Notice, which is Interesting, considering Amazon is usually the one putting everyone else on notice. So why is it this time that Walmart's the one showing us the way about the future of retail? Yeah, I think because the results were so uh, strong across the board and because they really showed that there is a future for a retailer that is a hybrid of both digital and physical shopping. So let's go through these numbers. 4.5% increase in comparable sales was the best that Walmart had seen on that measure in a decade, and it was powered by all the right things. There was 40% e-commerce growth, which puts it on track to meet the guidance that it set out for the year ahead, and there also was really strong growth in store traffic and in ticket, meaning people were putting more things in their baskets when they were in the stores. And all of that is a really good sign for Walmart and shows they're kind of firing on all cylinders right now. And what does it tell us, Sarah, about the consumer and his or her preferences for how to buy things? Because this is obviously coming at the same time, the same day. We have a Bloomberg scoop about Amazon, you know, potentially buying a, a movie theater out there. Are we learning something about ourselves as consumers and how we want to buy things and how we want to experience things? I think we are. And I think what we're learning is that the occasions for digital and the occasions for brick and mortar, they both exist and they're going to continue to coexist. And I think that one one powerful thing that Walmart has going for it right now is this grocery pickup, which is you place the order online, but you pick it up in the store. They have this at 1,800 locations now, and it's proven really popular with that suburban shopper, a mom who spends all day in her car shuttling kids, you know, to and from school and from choir practice. And uh, they find that, you know, pulling into a Walmart parking lot for a few minutes might actually be preferable than waiting around at home for a delivery window that's an hour or two hours long. And I think one way you see that this has been a success for Walmart is that Amazon is actually emulating it. They announced just last week that in Whole Foods, they're going to embrace this click and collect strategy as well. Sarah, you're an opinion columnist, so I feel like I can ask you this question. I want to get your take. I went to the Walmart shareholders meeting on May 31st, and there, to me, seemed like a sense on the ground that 10 years ago, people were sort of hating on Walmart because they were wiping out Main Street and mom and pop. And now recently, there's been sort of a more softer tone towards Walmart because they're the only ones that can take on and really compete against the giant of Amazon. As an opinion columnist and from all the retailers that you write about and what you hear, what's your take on the sentiment about that? right. I do think the sentiment has shifted a little bit. I think we're just generally in this moment where uh, the tech companies look a little bit more like the big bad wolf, right? Um, There's been a lot of conversation around, is Amazon too big? Uh, Is there some antitrust activity that needs to happen there? Um, And so I think against that backdrop, uh, Walmart does look a little bit comparatively better. And look, I think there's always been this tension in the narrative around Walmart that, yes, 
particularly in the 80s and 90s when it was barnstorming America. Uh, certainly some small businesses were uh, put out of business during that time. But Walmart also has played a really big role in lowering prices for a lot of value-oriented consumers and making things affordable for people that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. And perhaps that's some of what you're detecting there, too, in terms of that sentiment towards Walmart, uh, because maybe, maybe that's sort of coming more to the fore right now. So, Sarah, what's the not-so-fast of this story? What should people be a little cautious about as they get excited, at least today, about Walmart? What's looming? Yeah, I think uh, there's potential threats to its profitability. You know, one thing that is a big question mark for all of retail is tariffs, right? Um, We just don't know what's going to happen there and exactly what goods are going to be affected. And the other thing is price increases. Um, We have already seen from the likes of Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark that they're going to be taking price on some key items because of commodity cost inflation, mostly things that are made with paper. So uh, Cottonelle, Kleenex, uh, Pampers, those kinds of things. They're going to be raising the prices on those. And that puts the Walmarts of the world in a tough spot. You know, do you shoulder that and eat into your already thinning profit margins as you invest in e-commerce, or do you pass it on to the consumer? And when you're Walmart, whose whole brand is based on rock-bottom prices, and you have the likes of Aldi and Lidl knocking at your door, who are very good at making private label goods at a low cost, um, that's that's a tricky thing for them, and it should be uh, sort of intensifying in the back half of the year. Perfect. Thank you that so much. That was Sarah Halzak, our consumer and retail columnist over at Bloomberg Opinion. Jason, quickly is interesting. We got a quote from the CFO, Brett Biggs, saying customers tell us they feel better about the current economic health of the U.S. economy and their personal finances. So this is an economy story, and it's also a Walmart story. Investors feel pretty good, too. Shares up 9.6% today after earnings. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, Taylor Riggs. I think the only thing I like more than talking about private equity is maybe talking to a fellow Southerner. And I am so excited uh, to have Greg Lucan. He's the founder and chief executive officer of Lucan Investment Analytics. They manage approximately $350 million. He's based in Nashville, Tennessee, a.k.a. Nash Vegas. But he is here uh, right next to us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in Manhattan. Greg, great to be with you. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. So what are you seeing out in the market these days? You know, we hear about so many different inputs. We had a conversation earlier about how strong earnings were across the board, uh, more or less. How does the market feel right now to you? Well, I think we've really felt the impact of the four T's the last few weeks, uh, Trump, Twitter, trade and tariffs. And that's really put a wet towel on the equity markets, not only here at home, but also abroad and and, uh, particularly heavy on the emerging markets. 
I want to talk a little bit um, about bonds. I'm a bond girl. I can't have Jason let all the fun. I've been left out this whole time as you guys have been talking in a southern accent without me. So I'm going to bring it back to bonds a little bit. Um, in your recent report, you talk about the Fed says that interest rates are going up and believe them because they are. If I'm a bondholder, I've been clipping my coupon. Is that the good strategy? What's what's sort of your take on bonds these days? Well, everybody needs their own strategy, but we do believe that the Fed is telling the truth and we should expect a couple more rate hikes when we've got a uh, you know a 10-year bond uh, hanging out in the three percent range just a half a, a percent increase uh, in in rates cause a four percent drop in the uh, the principal value of that bond so I think bondholders have to do something to mitigate against that risk and there's several ways they can do that I want to throw a fifth T at you, which is tech. And, uh, you know, technology has been driving earnings. It felt like disproportionately through the first quarter. Um, but in the second quarter, the broad-based earnings growth was was really there. How should folks be thinking about tech within their portfolios? Is it something that they should be adding to because that will continue to be strong? Or can they look elsewhere for some, for some nice growth? Well, Jason, I think the answer is both. The... Uh, technology is getting woven into uh, so much of business. I mean, look at what happened with Walmart today. Their online sales up 40%, and they're a a direct uh, benefactor of people treating Walmart much the way they have Amazon. Interesting. And I want to talk about Caterpillar a little bit here, because after we get away, I mean, you'd mentioned Trump and tariffs at the top of the show, and you talk here about how some tensions over potential trade wars have already affected some U.S. companies. Interestingly enough, I was just looking here at Caterpillar. It's the 10th uh, biggest gainer today in the S&P 500. It's up 3%. Um, Some people are bullish on Caterpillar. Are they able to shrug off? What's the ability of these companies to sort of shrug off some of these tariffs and just continue to go full steam ahead? Well, the reality is the impact of these tariffs haven't really been felt on earnings yet. And so what we've seen with the decline in stock prices and these concerns are really just the the market digesting all the information that it has and saying, if these tensions aren't alleviated, that uh, that could have a really detrimental impact going forward. But we even see today that there are ongoing talks with China. We see uh, kind of renewed cooperation with Mexico uh, and uh, drug enforcement there. So I think there are a lot of uh, positive signs. Uh, there, there are always, pl- always plenty of things to get nervous about. All right. I'm going to bring in a sixth T. How about okay. that? Uh, Turkey. Uh, you know, you've alluded to it Emerging markets obviously reacted pretty strongly to that. We were talking to a colleague earlier about the the contagion, as it were, that worked through the, the Latin American currencies. Are we through the worst of it, at least in terms of Turkey's effect on the emerging market story? What should we be thinking there? Well... We're going to have to wait and see, obviously, how that plays out. But contagion is a is a big risk, and I think that if you look at what's happened in in the last few years, uh, really 2017 and the beginning of 2018, more than 85 percent of the dollars have gone into passive strategies, and passive strategies don't have risk mitigation in there. So if we end up in another Mm. situation, whether it's with Turkey or the next one may be Italy. I mean, we continue to hear rumblings over over the uh, past few weeks uh, about uh, Italy's debt. Uh, And we don't know if Greece is really put to bed either again. So those may raise their uh, raise their heads again. 
Greg Lucan, founder and chief executive officer of Lucan Investment Analytics. You're based in Nashville, so I'm proposing that the next time we have this conversation, we either do it at a Waffle House or a Honky Tonk or the Loveless <laughs> Cafe. The or yeah. the stage at the Grand the Old Opera. The, at the Grand Old Opry, the Ryman. What right are you thinking? Y'all come on down and we'll uh, – we'll, uh, Serve up the uh, Nashville hot chicken and uh, some chicken and biscuits. That sounds really good. You've got a you've got a Nashville connection. You yeah, have a couple sisters at Vanderbilt. Is that right? I do. You well, know what a, we're talking about. On a more about. serious note, I did like his comments about emerging markets, Jason. As you know, we've been talking about that EEM um, e- ETF, and it's lower again. Well, it's up a little bit, but on a year-to-date chart, it does not look pretty. Keeping us focused, Taylor Riggs. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.